This week on Life and Faith. Probably the best basis for common ground would be to say conspiracies happen and theories about them cause problems. Secularism means we're not going to live in a theocracy. My primary focus is to make sure people are safe and then to de-escalate it as quickly as possible. I love discovering what words can do. Surely they want the same things as us. Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre of Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And in today's episode, we're talking conspiracy theories. Yes, yes, we are. And we're headed down a bit of a rabbit hole, Natasha. And we want to invite people to join us. But you know, more seriously, conspiracy theories having a bit of a heyday at the moment. The belief that behind the visible mechanisms of society, powerful forces are up to no good. And that's not a new idea or reality, but recent years have been especially fertile ground for this, it seems. Yes, whether that's, you know, QAnon or the Trump juggernaut in the US or the ripple effects of a global pandemic, conspiracists have not been short on material. No, they haven't. And social media, of course, allows these ideas to take hold like never before. And in the US, but also closer to home, we've seen how some Christians have been especially enthusiastic about conspiracy theories. So one of the questions we're interested in today and here at CPX is how Christian faith might feed into this kind of thinking or potentially work against it. Yeah, and this is a question that our friends at ISCAST have specifically been working yeah. on. Um, ISCAST is, if you don't know them, it's an Australian network of scientists and others who are interested in the connections between science, technology, and Christian faith. And last year, they produced a paper called Who to Trust? Christian Belief in Conspiracy Theories. We're going to be speaking with the lead author of that paper, Nigel Chapman, uh, and also with someone who has been down the rabbit hole himself and returned to tell the tale. Yes. Michel Gagné is a French-Canadian historian and teacher who was once into JFK conspiracy theories in a big way. I have to confess, Natasha, I kind of, oh. you know, JFK, I was into it a bit too. Were uh, you? Interesting story. I saw the movie, I've been but to I Dealey don't... Plaza. It wasn't, oh. I wouldn't call it a pilgrimage, but <laughs> I, I was, I've been there, the site of the assassination. It's all very kind of interesting, and even the conspiracy ideas around the magic bullet and the, mm, mm-hmm. you know, the grassy knoll. Makes for a compelling story. Yes. does make for a compelling story. Anyway, Michel Gagné has some thoughts on how his evangelical upbringing fed into his obsession with these ideas, but also how faith might militate against them. Let's start at the beginning, though. What makes something a conspiracy theory? Here's Nigel Chapman. Well, to some extent, you know it when you see it. It's a term that everyone immediately recognises. There are some competing definitions. I quite like one by Karen Douglas, who's a UK researcher. She says, we define the term conspiracy as secret arrangement between two or more powerful actors to usurp political or economic power, violate established rights or agreements, or vital secrets, or unlawfully alter government and other institutions. So there's the idea that there is a secret illegality or deception which is going on. But it's not something that's benign, like the news reporting Santa Claus has left the North Pole. It's got to be something evil. And these theories aren't always wrong, right? No, they do happen. 
that's the thing. There's no principle which you can apply which says one supposed conspiracy will exist and another one doesn't. You can notice that most conspiracies contradict each other in different ways, which means they can't all be true. And they are, just by the nature of what they're saying, working from incomplete information. And so many of them are going to be wrong for that reason. But there have been substantial conspiracies. You know, there's been uh, Watergate, there's been things that sound like science fiction, like the MK Ultra project run by the United States government on uh, mental uh, telepathy and its military applications. There has been um, really twisted stuff like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, which were medical experiments that were done on um, African-Americans and then covered up later until it was leaked by newspapers. There are lots and lots of reasons to be suspicious of governments, large corporations, other entities, churches, and to find ways to hold them to account. But these theories are mostly very unlikely. Absolutely. There's a great difference between the ones that have been historically exposed which generally happened through, uh, well, in the case of, say, Watergate, it was courts and journalism that uncovered it. Uh, Freedom of information requests turned up other things. Generally, the things that have been exposed have been kinds of crime or corruption, and they haven't been, you know, international shadow councils of lizard people. Michelle Gagne has a podcast called Paranoid Planet, which fosters dialogue about various kinds of conspiracy thinking. He's also the author of a book called Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination. And Natasha, you asked him about how he went down that particular rabbit hole. Yep. He said there's a long answer and a short answer. The long answer, which I'll spare you the details, involves me from a very young age being interested in things like UFOs and, as a Christian, eschatology. You know, I didn't know what that word meant when I was 14, but certainly reading the Revelation and being fascinated with what I thought was a literal view of the future, uh, as many people in my denominations presented it, many of the books that were being sold. Uh, The short version is that when I was in university, having kind of this background, both interested in the paranormal and in, you know, metaphysical topics that kind of are interested in life after death and particularly the end times. But when I was in university around the age of 20, a film came out in 1991 Uh, a film called JFK by Oliver Stone. And at that time, I was studying political science at McGill University. Uh, We were talking about the first Gulf War, talking about issues about the Reagan and Bush governments, both of which my father admired. My father, who was a truck driver, pretty conservative, like the Americans, like the United States, and particularly the, the Republican Party at that time. But I think in university, I started having a very different perspective. You know, your teachers maybe make you read Noam Chomsky or other critical views of of American politics. And I think that movie seemed to piggyback on a lot of these other things I was reading, more academic materials. And I think I didn't have very good discernment because my my knowledge of American history was not very great. And so when I saw this whole three-hour story claiming that President Kennedy was murdered by a cabal of right-wing fascistic militarists, you know, the the military-industrial complex, somehow that really resonated with me. And then I guess I started seeing more conspiracies here and there. Over time, uh, it came to include uh, secret societies, uh, things like the Freemasons and Skull and Bones. 
Uh, and eventually when 9-11 happened, my, my immediate assumption was the man who killed Kennedy did this. I couldn't tell you who the men who killed Kennedy were, but somehow it seemed to all fit in a single story. So I guess what happens is once you believe in one conspiracy theory, you start believing a lot more of them because they reinforce each other. They're like spaghetti in essence. It's really hard to untangle them and they seem to reinforce one another, at least when you're only looking at one side of the issue. So were there negative impacts um, for you, for your relationship? as a result of kind of going down this path? Yeah, well, there's some slight ones, like you're the one of the party that everybody rolls their eyes and they go, oh no, there Gagne goes again. Um, <laughs> but I do remember before my wife and I were married, when we were, I don't know if we were engaged yet, but I remember having a conversation with her and having tears in my eyes because I felt so strongly that marriage might impede my search for truth. And I felt heartbroken because I thought, I don't want to break up with her but I don't want to take her on this wild ride that could last, you know, decades. Because the people whose books I was reading did exactly that. You know, many of them gave up marriage or never got married, never fulfilled their professional dreams, you know, of going to university and getting a doctorate or whatever, because they were so busy trying to write that book or trying to investigate that mystery. And so I could have been one of those people. And I think that's the problem when you put relationship after not so much a desire to be in the truth, but this quest, this quest for a kind of a hidden holy grail, it can really play with your mind. It can really harm your relationships because it's all engrossing. You spend a, a lot of time these days it would be on the internet or reading books that keep reminding you how other people don't care, don't want to know, or maybe even are not smart enough to know you start becoming a little bit arrogant, but also isolated. So while the story is empowering socially, conspiracy theories can be quite destructive. I'm happy to say that it didn't ruin anything in my life, but it could have impeded me from marrying this wonderful woman I've been with for, uh, I'm going to get this wrong here, 23 years. <laughs> <laughs> trying to remember if it's 22 or 23. We were married uh, just, a a few, just a few months before 9-11, so people can do the math. You've written about this experience that once the Pandora's box is blown open, there's no going back. But for you, there was, right? You closed the Pandora's box. How did that happen? Um, I'd like to say that it's all intellectual, but I don't think it is. I think a lot of it is being able to deal with um, the emotional issues. Uh, it could be trauma. Uh, for me, anxiety was a big one. I think from a young age, having been bullied and feeling a little bit helpless as a child, having to deal with those emotions without necessarily passing blame on my parents or the people who, who I felt did me harm, I had to come to the realization that that's in the past and some people may never ask for forgiveness and maybe I have to stop judging, I have to stop blaming. Uh, it was very easy for me to get angry and I could see I had this chip on my shoulder. So partly it's being able to deal with emotional hurt. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to get power, but you have to feel empowered. You have to either find your voice in the place where you are, or you need to be able to talk to a therapist or a counselor or a pastor who can help you process some of these feelings of hurt. I think also it helps to have a somewhat successful uh, way of life. At least you're not in debt and you have a place to call your own. You know, I was teaching in a Christian school, and I have to admit that at that time, it was a very low salary. 
I could only afford an apartment or a car. So in my first couple years of teaching, I had to move back into my dad's basement. And what did I do in that basement? I read a lot of internet stuff on JFK. So those things kind of compound. If you think that somehow you're never going to be able to have the same kind of revenue or status as other people in your society. But what did the most for me is I started teaching logic. And I'm not a logician. I'm not a philosopher. I'm a historian. But I was hired by the humanities department in this college that has a very multidisciplinary approach. So some are sociologists, some are political scientists, some are philosophers, and I happen to be a historian. And we all have to teach a basic course on knowledge that includes certain elements of epistemology and critical thinking. So what's an argument? Inductive, deductive logic, fallacies, these sorts of things. But I was teaching a course that actually a friend of mine designed on conspiracy theories. So it was called Knowledge and Conspiracy Theories. And when he proposed that, I'm like, hey, I, I want to teach that. And what was interesting is the first few years that I was teaching, I think I did a fairly good job at learning how to teach, first of all, critical thinking and applying it in certain ways. I really noticed very quickly that a lot of what I had assumed about the 9-11 attacks, I started thinking, well, that's silly. And I realized a lot of the holes in the arguments of conspiracy theorists. But that was not that ingrained in me. You know, it's something that came up in, what, 2001? I kind of started accepting a lot of 9-11 conspiracy theories around 2005. And I started teaching that course in 2007, 2008. So by then, it's not as if it was like a deeply ingrained, quote unquote, faith. But Kennedy had been with me for 15, 20 years by then. So it was a lot harder to give up this belief that I had, that at least once in human history, a conspiracy theory turned out to be true. But I did realize how emotionally agitated I got when I was teaching that subject. So I kind of took a couple of years where I didn't teach about Kennedy. I read the Warren Commission report. I read a lot more of the books that I had avoided for a while. And suddenly it's as if a lot of the very complicated parts of that tangled spaghetti got untangled and the story became a lot more simple because I was given the information that I didn't have for a long time. So I don't know if I've answered your question there, Mm, uh, but in essence, I would say dealing with the emotions comes first and then exposing yourself almost like inoculation to uh, contrary points of view, no matter what they are, so that at least you can see where the blind spots in your own perspective may be. So, Michelle, who killed JFK? I did. (laughs) Uh, No, no, I didn't. And I I wouldn't do that. It's interesting. I spent so much time thinking that there were hundreds of people involved. And um, after writing an entire big book on it, well, before I wrote the book, I came to believe this, but it was reinforced by actually proving it in 500 pages. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. It was a disgruntled young Marxist who, once you read his life story, you realize this is not a man who would work for the CIA. Uh, He was definitely a devout Marxist since he was about 15 years old, but also not a particularly sophisticated one. Uh, One who loved to read the papers and pick up books at the library. Very kind of self-educated man, but who struggled. He struggled emotionally with feelings of helplessness, with a mother who was overbearing, with brothers who were not around, with a father who died before he was born, a stepfather whom he loved but kind of disappeared. So there were a lot of emotional issues, a wife who came to love the United States and he hated it. So he he couldn't stand the fact that she wasn't, you know, following his one man movement. 
And so there was a lot of anger. And by the time he shot Kennedy, he was separated from his wife. He'd been rejected by the Soviets. He'd been rejected by the Cubans. Uh, there wasn't really much for him in life except to be the great man of history, which he was always convinced that he would do. So having read Karl Marx, having read biographies of Lenin and Mao and reading all the speeches of Castro in translation, he came to believe that he was going to strike a blow to Western capitalism. He tried to do it a year before by trying to assassinate an American general, Edwin Walker, whom he considered to be the next Hitler. And we don't hear much about Edwin Walker today, but if you read the media or books about him, he was um, a very important person in the anti-civil rights movement. So for Lee Oswald to shoot General Walker was to him to get rid of the next scourge, you know, the next world war. Uh, but he failed. And when Kennedy came to town, he brought his, his rifle to work and he decided to target the most powerful man who ever came by his life, right? It's not necessarily that he hated Kennedy, though he was well aware reading Cuban literature that there had been a number of attempts on Fidel Castro's life. So I believe that he was trying to defend uh, the revolution in Cuba from a distance or to prove to Fidel Castro and the Cuban government that they should not have rejected him to immigrate there. And he wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be known. He expected to have a as day in court. He never had it because another man decided to kill him. Another man who was also emotionally fraught, unfortunately. So it becomes a kind of a comedy of errors. And mm. trying to untangle that is, I think, kind of the Rosetta Stone to understanding the Kennedy assassination. If you don't understand the life and thoughts of Lee Oswald and Jack Ruby, the man who killed Oswald, then you start looking in all the wrong places for the answer. You're listening to Life and Faith and having solved the mystery of the 1963 Kennedy assassination, we're going to dig a little deeper into what makes conspiracy theories appealing and how people who disagree over these things can have genuine, constructive conversations about them. So back to Natasha's interview with Nigel Chapman. It feels like there's been a shift in the kind of conspiracy theories that people espouse. Like I think of this even in kind of the movies that we watch, that it used to be more contained specific things like the JFK assassination or, you know, it'll be a particular politician being corrupt or it's this particular assassination plot. And now it seems as though every conspiracy kind of movie, the threads connect to some world historical, some shadowy organisation in charge of absolutely everything with unlimited power. Is that something that you've noticed? Definitely. There's a Dutch researcher called uh, Geron Harenbaum who makes a distinction between modern and postmodern conspiracies. In a modern conspiracy, it's like everything is rational, sort of like a detective story. Whereas a postmodern conspiracy, you can't necessarily get at the truth. And it's more about power conflicts between groups of people. It's a little bit more like a spy novel than a detective story. There won't necessarily be a convincing last real explanation for everything. In a modern conspiracy, secret plots can be investigated and uncovered by members of the public, and they can do it through reason and evidence and an analysis. In a postmodern conspiracy, the thought process is different. It's more like what we would call conspiracism or a conspiracy mindset. Large parts of public life are thought to be secretly weighted against ordinary citizens. 
so that it's reasonable to suspect that anything mainstream or expert or official is part of a deliberate deception. So the default is that anyone in power is suspect and is working against the interests of the public. Well, that's exactly the term that Peter Knight uses. He says uh, conspiracy has become the default assumption in an age which has learned to distrust everything and everyone. Wow. So in these two cases, you've got people who approach conspiracy theories as special cases which they think about and they try to find evidence for and they reason about. And then you have people who assume that everything's a conspiracy from the get-go and you maybe can't prove any individual part of it, but you can still know that it's all conspiratorial in nature. So depending on who you're talking to, they are completely different cases. It's been particularly noticeable in the US, I guess, that a lot of people who identify as Christians have been quite caught up in um, some of the prominent conspiracy theories in recent years. Are there things that make Christians more likely to go down the conspiracy theory path? There was a study done in Australia in 2019 which asked this question. They got 500 uh, Australians, half of whom were religious and half not religious, at least as they identified, and they checked their conspiracism against standard metrics. But they also checked what their motivation was for the conspiracism. And the interesting result was that there was no difference overall between the two groups, but the two groups were very differently motivated. So the non-Christian group were primarily anti-authority in their stance, and that was how they came to mistrust authorities. The Christian group was much more prone to anti-intellectualism, but they had a corresponding lower anti-authority sentiment. It raises the concern, to my mind, that if we have an upsurge in Trump-style anti-authority sentiment among Christians, then you'll get the worst of both worlds because you won't have the anti-intellectualism being cancelled out anymore. Mm. So um, it's encouraging that uh, Christians aren't any worse. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) Well, they're things that we can, uh, I think, inoculate against. And Mm. the most settled result in conspiracy studies is that inoculation is better than cure. If you can prevent someone acquiring the sort of reflexive reactionary mistrust and the big bubble of misinformation in the first place, then that's just a whole lot more successful. For me, there's a question here about why some Christians might be anti-intellectual in the first place. There's a researcher at the University of Florida called uh, Joseph Yusinski, and he puts it like this, conspiracy theories are for losers not meaning it as an insult, saying that conspiracy theories appeal to groups who are losing political power or are losing social prestige or centrality or influence. Uh, If you're a movement which is numerically declining, as is the case with some churches, then you can either look at the reasons for that or you can blame other people. And conspiracy theories are probably the best way of blaming other people, especially if you already have a belief that the world is out to get you. Mm. There are some other ways that uh, Christians tend to skew towards um, anti-expertise views. Part of that is curiously similar to uh, science, since Protestantism and science kind of grew up together in the early modern period. They both have the belief that the world should be accessible to ordinary common sense. 
That has changed a little bit with big science and science becoming quite inaccessible to amateur researchers, unlike how it was in the 1800s. But the belief continues that you can quite literally do your own research. The um, belief that any individual can just think about things on their own and come to the right answer is a thing that's been very strong in science and also in Protestantism. But those things result in an automatic suspicion against modern science when it's done on huge budgets by people who took 20 years to become qualified to do it because it's not something that's accessible to everyone in the same way. On the other side of the ledger, perhaps, are there resources within the Christian faith that can or should guard against the harm that conspiracy theories can do? I think there is, and I think that um, Christians who believe in conspiracy theories, and these are not ethics that are unique to Christians, so this can be generalised. If someone believes in a conspiracy theory and you say to them, are you doing this because you believe in truth and justice? I will very likely say yes, because they believe that there are lies and injustices that are being spread around. And I think that creates some common ground for a conversation. If they are interested in truth and justice, then you can talk to them about how that should be achieved. I mean, conspiracy theories are quite famous for um, slander and partiality, for being very angry and divisive. If someone is going down the path of freely making a lot of false accusations against other people, and that's a thing that is a tendency in conspiracism. So if someone's concern is for achieving justice, then they must be very, very alert to not themselves committing slander. Because if you make false accusations, you're only adding to the injustice and the amount of untruth in the world. You're not really contributing to solving it. If your involvement in a conspiracy makes you just incredibly angry and uh, leads to a whole heap of interpersonal conflict, that's not going to produce the kind of um, faithfulness or loyalty that may also be a motivator in your involvement in, as you see it, exposing the conspiracy. You see there are people who are acting against our group, or they're acting against Christians, or they're acting against the general public. But if you're contributing to this kind of corrosive cynicism about public institutions then that's going to undermine your society and your group as well, and your character, more to the point. Nigel offers an unexpected parallel between Old Testament law and the situation of the modern-day conspiracist. There's a nice mental exercise you can do with you know, any accusation you might make based on a conspiracy theory. So you think that the national health system has been co-opted by an international organization to implant microchips in everybody, or that at least there are terrible side effects that are being covered up, something like that, then you're going to um, start accusing people who work in public health of being involved in it. If you maybe take the Old Testament case law response to that, a person who made a false accusation under Old Testament law would be subject to the penalty that they were seeking for someone else. So if you're suggesting that uh, Anthony Fauci should be killed for his involvement in the national health system in the US, are you confident enough that you would bet your life against that? That's um, one way you could look at it. 
at some point those accusations have to be paid for with evidence. If you have made a false accusation against someone, how are you going to make recompense for that? If you've made accusations loosely or freely and they turn out to be false, what can you do to fix that up? Michelle Gagné ended up rejecting the conspiracy theories that he'd invested so much time and energy in after he started teaching a course on critical thinking and conspiracies. Now, that sounds like a pretty ideally tailored scenario, but not exactly a scalable solution for most people. So I wanted to know, what advice did he have for people who are either invested in conspiracy theories themselves or have loved ones who are? How can we talk to each other? You know, one thing that Christianity teaches us is that every human being is made in the image of God. Or if you want to say it more plainly, every human has dignity. Every human has a good side. And the problem with conspiracy theories is they tend to simplify reality to a group of villains and a group of heroes or victims, right? The victims become the heroes in the story. And the conspiracy theory believer sees themselves as the victim, and the hero in the story. Realizing that we are all fraught individuals, that we all require forgiveness, that we all require dignity, uh, that we all require friends, will make us realize that every human being, including Edwin Walker and Lee Harvey Oswald and whatever CIA you know director that you might hate, All of these people are human beings, but if we dehumanize others, we are on the slippery slope of creating a false reality, a a simplistic myth that does not reflect our world. I think anyone who is not a conspiracy believer but has a, a loved one who is, make sure that you humanize the person. Sometimes the conversation gets incredibly complex, so you might say, look, I know this is important to you, but I value our friendship more than I value arguing about this. Can we just like play tennis or can we just like go to the movies and we'll leave this for another time? Mm -hmm. You might be willing to say, if you feel so led, look, give me one, two or three reasons that you think are important to look into this. And I think the problem with dealing with a conspiracy theorist is they're so busy trying to prove something to you that they're just throwing it at you. When you start machine gunning factoids or Bible verses at someone, you're really pushing them away. They're seeing you as a hostile critic. So you really have to avoid that. I know I've been using terms here that maybe I wouldn't use with a person who who does believe, but I would try to ask them questions about how they came to believe this. How does it make them feel to believe that this is the case? So rather than turning the conversation towards what's going on out there, it's more how are you doing? How is this affecting your life? Why do you think this is important? Right? So you're making the person talk about themselves, not talking about the CIA, Kennedy, or whatever. I think that generally creates a more positive exchange. It also allows a person who's not an expert in that particular field to have a conversation at the same level, because now we're talking about feelings and life situations. Because let's face it, all conspiracy believers spend so much time focusing on this narrow topic or a number of them that they can argue you under the table because you'll never have as many facts as they do, you know, not necessarily they're better facts, but they'll always have more stuff to throw at you. So generally what I say is, look, 
if you want to talk about this, give me your three best reasons and give me a few weeks to look into it. And then I'll come back and I'll let you know what I found. I am willing to read one thing of yours if you're willing to read one thing of mine, right? Kind of do a, an even-handed thing. So there are two different approaches there. It's saying, look, I, I'd rather not get into this, but I do value our friendship. Or uh, let's talk about it, but let me with you set up some boundaries. So we're not here shouting at each other and we're not spending five hours at this, you know, staff Christmas party, alienating everyone else because we're shouting or, or debating this uh, too aggressively. We've kind of been speaking about conspiracy theories as though, I mean, generally speaking, they are not true. Does that mean you think we should trust those in positions of power? There's mistrust and there's distrust. Distrust is you haven't been convinced that a particular source or person uh, has your best interest in mind. Uh, there's no doubt that various individuals and groups have been victims of discrimination and other types of abuse. So that's not wrong if we want to call that, you know, distrust. Mistrust is the kind of the intentional or the refusal to accept something else because it goes against our interest. So here it's not that we think the other person in, has an agenda. It's we, we assume without evidence that the other person has an agenda and we choose to take offense. And so I think that mistrust is almost like an active disloyalty to people who actually do care for our well-being. When you trust that another person is doing their best, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. In philosophy, we call this the principle of charity. You assume first that another person has your best interests at heart until proven otherwise. So we don't start with the assumption that people are out to get us. We start with the assumption that everyone is an image of God, though they may act out in certain ways that will harm us. And that's where maybe we need to be on our guard and cautious. Back to Nigel Chapman for a final word. Probably the best basis for common ground would be to say conspiracies happen and theories about them cause problems. It should be possible for people on each side to agree that conspiracies do happen, but then also why do theories about them cause problems and does that need to occur? Because it should be possible to discuss any particular conspiracy theory in a rational and a calm way. You would think that would actually be more persuasive because a lot of the time it's not the conspiracy theory that's the problem. It's the way that people behave as a consequence of the conspiracy theory. And that can work in both directions. It can be also the people who don't believe the conspiracy theory and are completely intolerant of anyone who thinks otherwise. That can happen in both directions. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore, who did the interviews for today. Our warmest thanks to Nigel Chapman and Michelle Gagne. We'll put links in the show notes to the ISCAST paper on conspiracy theories and Christian belief, and also to Michelle's book, Thinking Critically About the Kennedy Assassination, Debunking the Myths and Conspiracy Theories, as well as his podcast, Paranoid Planet. 
If there's someone in your life who you are having clashes with over these kinds of questions, then these resources are a great place to start to try to find common ground. Or you could try sharing this conversation with them. As always, you can send us feedback via podcast at publicchristianity.org. And of course, we'd also like to thank our producer, the discerning Alan Douthwaite. Next week. In my own research, I asked people what their best realistic hope for humanity was. And for young people, it was that things don't get worse, which doesn't actually have any content, really, (laughs) in terms of where you're pulling towards. And we need that. We seem to be designed to need some sort of image of a future to motivate us for action.